in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I take the opportunity to welcome our radio listeners and also those who are watching us at www.abundantlifelv.org. Once again, you're tuned in to our worship service here at the Abundant Life Seventh-day Adventist Church. Indeed, it is a pleasure to have our regular uh, listeners and those who are watching us. And if you are joining us for the first time, it's our pleasure to have you as well. If you'd like to have a copy of this sermon or any previous, you may write to us at Abundant Life Seventh-day Adventist Church, 1720 North J Street, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89106, or please do call us and express uh, your desires to us at 702-647-2627. Our speaker today is our senior pastor, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. He has served us here for many years, and we're looking forward to hear from him again at this time. But before he comes, we will have a special 
Sacred Selection from Sister Robin Brown. Then you will hear from our speaker, Senior Pastor, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. Hear ye him. As you listen, I invite you to meditate on the words of this song. The song is entitled Before the Throne of God, and I just love the words as we all look forward to the day when we will stand before his throne and we can think about all he has done, all he's doing for us now, and all that he is yet to do. A strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence deep. Heart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life with Christ on with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior. Thank you, Sister Brown, and 
Thank you, ushers. Thank you to our musicians, Dr. Ellis, the others. Thank you to the deaconesses and the floral committee for these lovely flowers. Amen. Shall we bow our heads? Our Father in heaven, we honor you, our Savior, the Lord of our Savior, and we honor you as the great God of the universe and pray that as we seek to learn more today as to how to live and adjust in this sinful world with Christ as our guide, that he will open our eyes that we might see new glimpses of ways and of means whereby our salvation is attained and be willing to serve him better as a result. In his name and for his sake we ask it. Amen. The book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. is where we will begin our study. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I will read at verse 15 and on. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit, or second visit, you might substitute for that word, and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia unto you. And then he says, as I make this trip, Corinthians, Church of Corinth, I had hoped to be able to visit you and to go to Macedonia and come back and see you again. And of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, or when I was planning all this, did I use lightness? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? The old King James. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanius and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Our scripture finds the apostle explaining to the church at Corinth why he had failed to visit them as he had promised. He had said that those were his plans, but those plans had been interrupted. And as a result, the members of the church at Corinth were upset. In fact, history and other scriptures paint the picture of a church that had become discouraged. A church that had been invaded by false doctrines 
and false teachers who had, in fact, presented Paul as being fickle with his promises and undependable and, by inference, even dishonest that he had promised to come and he hadn't. And Paul had sent Titus to Corinth to deal with the problem and with good results so that between the writing of 1 Corinthians and the second letter from which we have read, Titus had helped them out and they were pretty well adjusted and now Paul writes 2 Corinthians and expresses his thanksgiving for the repentant majority and he makes his appeal to a rebellious minority who still would not believe that they would come around to understand and accept his explanations. And over and over again, if you read carefully through the book of 2 Corinthians, you will see that he is in more than one place defending himself, as it were, or explaining himself. And he does so by saying, look, I have written to you, I have preached to you, I have associated with you in the name of Christ, and I have been in the modality of the Lord himself with whom there was no wishy-washiness, of the Lord himself, with whom it was black or white, either yea, yea, or nay, nay. My proposition to you, Corinthians, the apostle is saying, is that you understand that with Jesus, there is no middle ground. There is no neutral zone. There is no in-between stance, no safety zone where you are in between a positive and a negative relationship with Christ. For Christ himself did say, you are either for me or against me. And when it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ, it is never woulda, coulda, shoulda, if, and, or but, it's either yay, yay in positive affirmation or nay, nay in negative denial. So I come to you today, Abundant Life, reminding you that in Jesus Christ, it is always yay. Amen. Never nay, but always yay. Those who respond to the gospel with a nay, come in various sizes and shapes. There are those who refuse the gospel, like the rich young ruler who said nay. He expressed an interest in the church, in Christ. But when he read the terms, when Christ pulled out his GPS, when Christ drew the map and showed him the narrow way that he would have to travel and the sacrifices he would have to make, that he would have to give up his own ideas of what is important in life that he would have to scrap 
his ego in exchange for humility, the Bible says he turned away sorrowfully. He said, nay. There are those who say nay, who don't refuse him outright. In fact, they are even more radical. They actually accuse him. Those who accuse Christ are the cynics in society. They don't just turn their backs on Jesus, they make fun of religion. They say nay by teaching that life is just a biological accident. And you really don't have to worry about judgments and commandments and uh, a day when Christ is going to demand an accountability. And they say that all Christians are hypocrites. And, and they say with Marx that religion is an opiate for the masses. Religion is something we take to drug us against the realities of the universe. To make us forget about death. And that gives us a false feeling of security about something better after the grave. They say that it doesn't matter how you live, what you eat, or what you drink, because you never die till your number comes up. If it looks good, buy it. If it tastes good, eat it. If it feels good, wear it. If it sounds good, believe it. And if it smells good, try it. And these who accuse stoutly maintain that you should live, just eat, drink, and be merry, and whenever it happens, it happens, and you're gone, and that's the end of it. They say nay. They look at the gospel. They hear it and say nay, nay to the offerings of grace. But while some refuse, like the rich young ruler, and others that we have just described accuse, unfortunately, there is a third group, and that group was represented at Corinth, and they are those who abuse the gospel of grace. These are church members who accept the offerings of the gospel and do not order their lives according to its principles. And these nay-nayers come in two colors. First of all, there are those who come into the church and they get baptized and they stay a little while and then pretty soon they're gone. And you see them, it's happened here, it's happening everywhere. People get baptized, they're all excited, but you don't see them anymore. Or you see them a little while and then gradually, because the seed fell in shallow soil, the birds come along as Christ uttered in his par parable and take away the seed. And because they don't have much root, when problems arise, when somebody hurts their feelings, when they feel a little neglected, when they see some member in the church doing something wrong, when they run into you at Walmart, and you don't look like a Seventh-day Adventist, like they were taught Adventists should look. They decide that we are hypocrites and we don't really believe what we say, and so they leave. 
There are others who never leave the church. There are others who stay forever, but gradually their first love leaks a little by little until finally their first love is lost and they become members who swing in and out of the church. They are Seventh-day Adventists in the strictest sense. They pay attention to religion and God and the church on the seventh day only. Members who settle down into the Sabbath-only routine. And not just Sabbath only, but many times 11 o'clock only. And you never see them anymore. They say nay, nay to mission work. And the mission leaders get up and talk about handing out clothes to the poor and to the needy and to the homeless and distributing fruit and vegetables and giving out the, giving out the handbills and the lesson studies. But there are those who simply sit in cold indifference and they say nay, nay, nay. They say nay, nay to coming back to support the young people at AY. They say nay, nay, nay to prayer meeting. And they say nay to inviting their friends to church. Nay, by ignoring the church's standards of dress and diet and social life. Nay, nay, by allowing their sons to play football on Sabbath and their daughters to dress like grown women and go to the movies on Saturday night. Nay, nay, by allowing ourselves to become overtaxed by work and overwhelmed by debt and overruled by TV and overcome with temptation. And the result is that we finally become like the barren fig tree of Mark 11. And you remember that incident highlighted in the life of Christ. Look with me there in the book of Mark chapter 11 because it's a good description of what happens when we say nay to the gospel. Jesus reminds us that we who are his people must be alive and awake and that we must have a vital relationship with him if, in fact, we are going to be healthy and well and vigorous in doing his will. Verse 13, verse 12, And on the morrow when they came, Mark 11, from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of the figs was not yet. And then in Luke 13, 7, there's an even more stark example or illustration of the barrenness of individuals who once loved the Lord and they were once happy in Jesus and once fervent in Christ. But we lose our zeal, our ardor, our enthusiasm. He spake also a parable, verse 6. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found what? None. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, 
Behold, these three years I am seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And so, it is a fact that when you or I proclaim Christ, and we look good, and we sound good, and we know certain scriptures, and we dress up and come to church, and we, we seem to be, we seem to be a, a, a fit part of the building, but we are producing no good works when we are void of, of that kind of production whereby God can look and see that our lives are reproducing Christ in us that the world can see, then God says we are to be pitied and one of these days even cut down and cursed because we consist of nothing but leaves. But you know, the book of, the book of Revelation gives perhaps the clearest portrayal of what happens when a member when a member loses zeal and the first love with which we were baptized. Look at Revelation chapter 3 and beginning at verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen. And who is the Amen, everybody? The amen is Jesus, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. Now, Laodicea, in Bible prophecy, is the last church. Laodicea is the name given to the believers who will be living in the end of time. You and I constitute Laodicea. And look at how the Bible describes us. It says that I would that thou wert either cold or hot. Verse 16. So then because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's an awful description for a member of the church. Nothing but leaves, neither cold nor hot, Swinging in and out of the door, walking, sleepwalking through our religion. We're not refusing Christ. We're not accusing him. But we are abusing the gospel of grace because we are not making disciples for him. We're not working for him. We have become Victims of the age, we've succumbed. The Bible says, not the preacher, the Bible says we have succumbed to the influences of the times in which we live, and by doing so, we say nay, nay to the opportunities that the gospel presents. I read from the book Christian Service by Ellen G. White. It is a solemn statement that I make to the church and listen to this, that not one in 20 whose names are registered on the church books are prepared to close their earthly history.
not one in 20 is prepared to close their earthly history. Now, I'm not claiming that I, that I have to be one of that, that I happen to be the one in the 20. I need to better my experience as well. But I want to challenge you today. As we approach the end of the year, as we move toward 211, that you and I make these next two months weeks of spiritual dedication. And if you know that you have been slipping, slipping, if you know that you're on the slippery slope, if you know that you're not where you were when you were baptized or where you were when you first fell in love with Jesus, my plea to you today is let's turn away from the nayness, the negativity, uh, all of the dangers that surround and bind us that fill our minds and, and keep us occupied and that we latch on to Christ as never before and that we make sure that our calling and election is certain. And how do we get like this? How do we become Laodicea? How do 13 churches, 13 congregations in Las Vegas, 13 of us keeping the Sabbath, 13 different congregations meeting every Sabbath, Korean, Filipino, Hispanic, and all the rest of us all over this city, and still most of the city doesn't even know we exist. How is it that we have such a dynamite message and we have such firecracker results? It is because of the choices that we have made. It is because of our failure to read and study the Word of God and to grow in the Word. It is because, as Revelation 3 reminds us, verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. It is because we are satisfied and we don't even know that we don't have the power we should have. It is because we have condescended into normalcy and doing the same things over and over again that we know not, the rest of the verse says, that we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But how do we get this way? How do 13 Seventh-day Adventist congregations coexist in this city and most of the people don't even know who we are? Never heard of Seventh-day Adventists? Never been to an Adventist church? How? Because first of all, we have failed to read and study the Word of God like we should. When we read and study God's Word, the sap will rise in the tree. We grow. The energy will come because the Word of God has in it all the ingredients for our growth and all the ingredients to produce in us the fruits of righteousness so that, in fact, when people see us on the job, they'll know we're different and they will want to know, even without preaching a sermon on the 2400 days or the Sabbath or the commandments or the mark of the beast, people will want to know Whose God do you serve? 
That's the way we ought to be. The Bible says that in Old Testament times, the church was so on fire, they turned the world upside down. And that wasn't just because they were doing things. It was because the Holy Spirit was blessing their ministry. And when we let our roots down into the Word of God, we will tap into the phosphorus of faith and the calcium of compassion and the zinc of zeal and the potassium of patience and the magnesium of, of mercy and the antitoxin of the Holy Ghost will fill our hearts and we will flourish and we will flower and we won't be satisfied with the mercy drops that are falling around us, but we will cry, Oh God, mercy drops have been falling around us, but here at Abundant Life and the rest of the churches in town, for thy showers we plead. And we need those showers. We have not had them. We are not filled with the Holy Ghost, and we must be before God can truly bless us. And how do we get this way? Not only by not reading the Word of God, but may I remind you of what 1 Testimonies 6.18 says. We get this way by improper treatment of our bodies. It's a practical consideration. But the fact is, you cannot be a happy, aggressive, productive, fruit-bearing fig tree when you're not feeding your body the right kind of food, the right kind of nourishment. We are saying nay, nay to the gospel. The quote is, the abuses of the stomach by gratification of appetite are the fruitful source of most church trials. Those who eat and work intemperately and irrationally talk and act irrationally. If we are going to be filled with the Spirit, if God is going to wake us up from Laodicea miasma, if God is going to shake us and get us to the place where we're really on fire and where we, we, we are bold, where we have holy boldness to go out and spread the gospel and where we're willing to sacrifice not just of our money but of our time and talent for him and get busy, whether it's stop smoking, Sister Superintendent, or whether it's this distribution distribution of the food brother elder or whether it's support of the church school brother principal whatever it is when God fills us with his love and we say yay yay instead of nay nay we will be doing it proportionately proportionately by the way we treat our bodies so that our minds can be healthy and there's no way that we can mistreat this wonderful, miraculous machinery we have, this marvelous machinery, and at the same time be alert and awake and receptive to the inflowing of the Holy Spirit. And another way that we get this way, that we get into the nay-nay posture, is by opening our hearts and minds to negativism within the body. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you listen to gossip and speculation 
and fault-finding and criticism, it will squash your spirituality. It will burn it out. You cannot have an open ear to fault-finding and to criticism and, and to gossip. It will give you a nay-nay posture and a negative relationship to the church and to your Lord. I read 2 Testimonies 4.66. Gossipers and news carriers are a terrible curse to neighborhoods and the church. Two-thirds of all the church trials arise from this curse. Did you hear that? Two-thirds of all church trials arise from gossip, speculation. Have you heard? I understand. Did you hear? They say that's what the rumor is. If you open your ears to that foolishness, it will crush out your spirituality. It will blind you. It will put glaucoma over both your eyes. You won't be able to see a thing right. You won't trust anybody, and it'll keep marginalizing you. It'll drive you right to the edge of your Christian experience. It'll drive you out of the church, and you'll be one unhappy brother, one unhappy sister, and a victim of the smothering and reducing and the drowning and the squelching of that first love which was so wonderful and, and, and so such a happy experience that you had when you first found Christ. But the question is, as our song leader sang earlier today, is there a bomb in Gilead? Is there a way to avoid all this disease? That's what Jeremiah asked in chapter 8 of his book. And the answer is yes, there is a response to the negativity, to the nay-nay that reduces our order, our zeal, our love for Christ. And that is the yay-yay that is to be found by falling in love with Jesus. By falling madly in love with Jesus. And in what sense is Jesus yay to our lethargy? to our lack of enthusiasm, to the hardening of our spiritual ardors and arteries. He is yea, yea, because it is impossible to truly love Jesus and be quiet about it. You cannot truly love Jesus and hide it. You cannot truly love Jesus and keep it to yourself. It'll show in your face. It'll re be revealed in your words. And living with Jesus converts us from love of gossip into hatred of fault-finding and speculation. When you truly love Jesus, you not only stop talking about other people, stop complaining and criticizing and judging, you not only stop doing it, you will stop listening to it. You will break away from your discouraging friends. B, loving Jesus makes you anxious to be where prayer is want to be made. Prayer in your closet, 
prayer in your family worship, and prayer in your church. Loving Jesus will make you keep on working in spite of the fact that you gave Bible studies and nobody came in. In spite of the fact that you went and delivered the lessons for three weeks and then that person closed the door and, and the little girl said, Mama's not here, and you know she is. Yes, Loving Jesus will keep you everlastingly at it. Let me read to you the same book, Christian Service, page 101 by the prophet. If you fail 99 times, giving you a lot of fractions here, huh? One in 20, two-thirds of the church. And now listen, if you fail 99 times in 100, but succeed in saving the one soul from ruin, you have done a noble deed in the masses' cause. If you go to 99 doors with that track and with those lessons and you get turned away and the people disappoint you, if you go 99 times, you can't stop and say, well, they won't listen to me. I don't have the talent. I somebody else. If you go 99 times and keep on and just one in a hundred accepts Christ. You shall have done your duty and I'll go any further and say, even if nobody accepts Christ. You've done what God wanted you to do, and you have fulfilled his obligation to go. Loving Jesus allows us to do all that, but it allows us to say yea to the trials and tribulations of life. All the trials. Now, God doesn't tempt anybody, James 1, 3. I know. Genesis 22 says God tempted Abraham when he told him to go slay his son. But a better reading of that is God tested Abraham. God doesn't tempt anybody. God doesn't do, do like these, these, these policemen do. Uh, well, you know, you, if you look at your television late Saturday night, there's a certain program where they try to trap people. Now, I'm not going to go into that, but some of you know what I'm talking about. God doesn't try to trap you. God doesn't lay, he doesn't lay, lay snares. He doesn't set up stings. That's the word I want. God doesn't set up stings for the Christian, but he will test us to see if we love him. And when we love him, we will find that all those who would do right will suffer persecution. But when we are tried, we come out of the persecution having lost the dross and all the exterior, inferior material so God can produce the gem of Christian that he wants you and me to be. And we have to say yes to his trials. No matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult, no matter how seemingly impossible, thank you, Sister Stevenson. God can do the possible, but we have to be willing to say, yes, Lord, whatever you've got to do to me to get me ready for the kingdom, I'm in your hands. Amen. Go ahead and do it, Lord. Straighten me out and bring me through. And when we love Jesus, we find out that all things do work together for good to them that love the Lord. That it doesn't always happen right away. Sometimes it takes years and sometimes it takes decades, but we will discover, and if not in this world, in the world to come, that we have been led by God the way we would have wanted to go if we had only known the end from the beginning. When we love Jesus, we trust him even when we can't trace him. When we love Jesus, we say yes to him by refusing to work on Sabbath. 
When we say yes to Jesus, we refuse to spend our tithe. When we say yes to Jesus, we refuse to allow any circumstance or any individual to cause us to deter from strict and straight obedience to his will. And that's how we say yes. That's how we live the yay yay experience. We can say yes to the second coming of Christ. We can say yes to the fact that Christ's coming soon may be a time beyond our lives. Even though soon eludes us, just like it's eluded all of the prophets from the time all of the brethren, the church members, and the patriarchs from the time of the Garden of Eden when Jesus first promised to come again in Genesis 3.15. We can say yes because we know that there is a happy ending to this veil, this, this, this pale of life, and that at the end of the journey there is life eternal and that God has promised that whether he shall find us living or whether he shall waken us from the grave, he has an abundant everlasting gift of eternal life to give to those who love him. It allows us saying yes to Jesus. It allows us to recognize that there is no time between death and the second coming. So it's going to be soon one way or the other. If he comes while we're living, it's soon, because we all live a short life, be it 80, 90, 100, we all die, Methuselah 969, and he died, the living know that they shall die, but saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to death itself with the hope of the grand resurrection when he comes again. We must say yes, because we understand and believe that his death, burial, and resurrection is our token of life everlasting. We must say yes because we know that Jesus' death has changed B.C. to A.D. and eternal nothingness to temporary sleep and the ironclad grave to the empty tomb. And as his followers... His death, burial, and resurrection changes us from slaves of sin to heirs of salvation. Before he died, Jesus promised that he would rise on the third day. And when he was laid in the tomb, the universe wondered, could he pull it off? He said that destroy this body and in three days I will build it up again. But nobody had ever heard of that. They knew that he had raised Lazarus from the grave. They had understood about Elijah being translated and they knew that he had raised the son of the widow of Nain. They knew some had escaped death and they knew that some had been raised from the grave but those who had been raised from the grave were pulled up by an exterior force from without. They'd never heard of somebody rising from within the grave. 
They never heard of resurrection, self-resurrection from within. And so they wondered. All the angels in glory wondered. They'd never seen this before. Could he do it? Would it be yay, yay, or nay, nay? Could he come through with his promises? And when they had pulled him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb, the evil mob said nay. The exulting Pharisees and Sadducees said nay. The cringing, fearing disciples said nay. And the weeping women said nay. And Lucifer, who stationed his imps at every corner of the sky, said nay. And took his body down and put it in Joseph's new tomb. And on Friday night, all was quiet. The angels were hushed. Could he do it? Could our commander pull this one off? We've seen all the wonderful things he's done. But could he do this one? They watched and they wondered and nature stood still. And in the sepulcher there was eerie silence. And on the Sabbath day that silence continued while all the universe looked and watched and waited. But then on the first day of the week, just before dawn, it happened. There was a stirring on the slab in the tomb. He had laid on the slab. He had lain there and rested all during the Sabbath hours with no sign of life. But now, right on time, right on cue, a nerve twitched in his resting brain and his heart was triggered and started to beat again. And the blood that had been still began to flow through his system. He's still lying there now. But when that nerve twitched and told the heart to beat and the blood began to flow, it moved from the superior and inferior vena cava over to the right atrium and then to the tricuspid valve and on to the right ventricle. And from there it flowed through the pulmonary arteries to the lungs where it was oxygenated. And then it was taken to the four pulmonary veins to the left atrium and through the mitral valve over to the left ventricle and to the aorta, that big valve, and then circulated through the body and fully oxygenated blood was then sent from his brain through his heart down through his extremities and when it reached his fingers and his feet and his eyes Jesus awakened and he stood up clear-headed and rested and refreshed and he folded his clothes folded his clothes neatly and laid them on the slab ah oh, I like the way Jesus does things in order I like the way that Jesus does things on time and in order right on time saints right on time he awakened from his sleep and he didn't come rushing out of the tomb like some of us did out of our houses this morning he made sure his bed was made up 
he made sure that his slab was in order and when he had folded his clothes it was then and then only that he stepped out and looked at the rosy sun beginning to rise in the horizon he had ingested death but death could not digest in him he had taken in death but death could not take in him he had journeyed to the land of decomposition and returned without suffering putrefaction. He had no molecular breakdown, for when he came forth, he cried, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And the darkness of the tomb gave way to the brightness of the resurrection. And it is because of that sacrifice, it is because of that victory, it is because of his death and burial and resurrection that he appeals to us to be faithful, that he calls on us to hang in there no matter what happens, that he tells us to read and study and be faithful and to focus on him so we can be barren in his cause, not barren in his cause, but we can bear fruit for his cause and we can be lights on a hill and abundant life can not only give out fruit and vegetables but by God's grace we can inject life into the dead souls that are walking around in our community and by God's grace be the couriers of everlasting life he awakened and the empty tomb said yay he came forth and all of those who rose up with him, Corinthians reminds us, a great multitude, they went about Jerusalem saying, yea. And when he was on the road to Emmaus and they recognized him, they went shouting, yea, yea. And the ecstatic Mary, when she met him, said, yea. And the marveling disciples, when he walked in on them in the upper room, they cried, yea, this is the Lord. And now he wants you and me abundant life. He wants us to get out of all of our binding weights and all of our extracurricular activities. He wants us to shake a loose from any and everything that's keeping us from rising to higher ground. And he wants us to say, yay, yay to the spirit, yay to the cross of Jesus Christ, yay to his sacrifice. And we can do that, but only if we will pay attention dedicating ourselves to the word in deeper commitment and I'm going to make a promise to you today and I want you to join me now I'm going to promise you that I am going to read Isaiah chapter 53 that Ellen White says it would be good if we would read that chapter every single day in the week why Isaiah 53 because that's the chapter on Jesus sacrifice and humility and I want to know, do I have anybody in this church who will say, yes, pastor, if that's what it's going to take to help me to shake a loose from the world and from that which worries and binds me, whatever it is, I'll join you in reading Isaiah 53. Do I get anybody who join me in reading Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53. What chapter is that, everybody? What chapter is that, everybody? Isaiah 53 I want you to read it tomorrow morning or whenever you do your study and read it every day and you know what it's going to do it's going to make us sweeter Christians it's going to make us stronger Christians the other thing I want you to join me in 
And I pledge to you, I'm going to do this. Because when I talk and preach like this, I'm preaching to me. I know I'm not what I ought to be. I know I'm not what I was. But I'm not what I ought to be. And I want to be filled with God's Spirit. And I want to lead you in that kind of dedication. The next thing I want you to do is join me in fasting every Friday. Every what day, everybody? From now till January 1. You can miss one meal. You can miss two meals, three meals, but some kind of fast, church. Let's get into a spiritual modality. So when the new year comes, we'll all be able to look in God and say, Yay, yay, I'm trying, Lord, by your grace. Yay, Lord, I've made my decision. Yay, Lord, I'm going to do better. Yay, Lord, I love you and I want to keep growing. I don't want to be a spiritual runt. I want to keep growing. How many will join me in a Friday fast of some kind? You, you choose what you want. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. And we do say yea to him today. We say yea to the cross. We say yea to his promises. We've said nay too many times, too many ways. But today, we say yay. And we ask you to accept our dedication. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there are some today who are not members of this church. And you may be surprised when we confess that we're not perfect and we're not. You may be surprised when we say we still have a way to go, but that's a fact. We can all improve. And you'd like to belong to a church that's like this. A church that loves Jesus and that that is determined by God's grace to do his will and has members. We're not perfect, but Lord, we pledge ourselves to deeper study and prayer and fasting. And you would like to raise your hand and say, you know, I'd like to be a member of a church like that. Count me in. Here's my hand. I want to study and become a full-fledged member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Raise your hand right where you are, and our Bible workers will take care of you, and we'll see that you're made a part of the family. Oh, how Welcome you to the family. Who are you? Where are you? Our Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross which shines forth brightly in our hearts today. Accept our dedication, our consecration, our determination to hold on to be yay, yay, till you shall come a call. In Jesus' name and for his sake we ask it. Let all the people say, Amen. The bus.